Sí, eres. This time I invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Kings 17. We began the Elijah and Elisha series last Sunday evening, and we traced the tragic slide from faithfulness to idolatry, uh, from Solomon, where he led in a crack of compromise, to Jeroboam establishing two sets of calves in the northern kingdom where people would go and worship instead of Jerusalem, and finally to Ahab rejecting and turning his back on God. One thing to note as we begin the Elijah and Elisha series is that all of this is happening in the northern kingdom. And so that's where the geography is going to be. Please pray with me. Father, right now we ask that you would show us that you are the only one who satisfies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you know that I'm about to deploy. Well, about is relative. In, a, in a, at the end of the year, I am scheduled to deploy. And um, I'm a little disappointed at the time that I'm deploying. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge either way. But you see, if Kuwait is anything like Iraq, I'm missing the best part of the year. I was in Iraq for three years, and I, my favorite time was September, October. The, the heat had kind of started to slack off. It was very dry, 90s, 80s, kind of nice and breezy. But it was only my favorite time of the year because I was there in modern times. You see, there's one problem with Iraqi falls. They are very, very dry. Iraq will have had five months of really hot summers, with no rain. How it works is there's about three or four months of rain, November to February, in between the hot, hot summers. You get about two months on either side. And we are going to go into Kuwait right when it's really cold and rainy, and then we'll leave in the peak of the summer. So it'll be, we'll get it all. But you know, it is incredible to be in a rainy or dry season, at least in Iraq. Can you imagine going eight months without seeing clouds? Eight months without significant rain and hot, scorching suns throughout the summer? What that does? You know, at the end of the rainy seasons, plants shoot up. There's green everywhere. And the clouds go away. And the rain stops. And the sky clears. And the mud, the puddles are so wet, start to dry out. And they get those those big cracks. And then every week... The plants start to to go brown, and then the ones that are away from water, they die. And then the soft mud grows harder and harder, and there are more and more cracks that form until finally it's not even mud anymore. It's this fine dust that almost appears like sand. The only way to live at that period is either to be near a, a water source or a river or to dig a well. Without water, there is no life. Iraq's season is, at least has some similarities of Israel's rainy season. Let's read 1 Kings 17, the first verse. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except 
at my word. This is the word of God. Now, if you're reading through 1 Kings and you come to the verse, you have to ask a question, why Elijah? What's going on here? And many of you are familiar with the stories of Elijah and Elisha. They have, they're, just, they're great for kids' Bible stories. You think about Elijah fed by ravens just a few verses later. The showdown on Mount Carmel. 400 prophets of Baal versus one prophet, Elijah. The axe head that floats. Naaman, the leper, dipped into the Jordan and cleansed. And so on. These are very familiar. And yet, Elijah here is a mystery figure. You're reading through 1 Kings, if you are, you come through this rapid succession of bad kings, just short paragraphs and then move on. And then out of nowhere comes this Elijah figure. No introduction, no resume, no lineage. So you say, why? Well, it's because the king he's opposing, Ahab, worshipped Baal. He's turning Israel away from their true God. And so the conflict begins. So let's read back just a few verses and learn a little bit about this King Ahab. Chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as it were, had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, son of the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his son, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Ahab is bad news. In fact, right before his father, the author of Kings said, he's the worst king of all of them. And then he comes and says, but Ahab, he's even worse. Why? Because he officially sanctions the worship of false idols. He doesn't just tolerate them or let the door and he becomes the champion of the enemy of God. Now, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Israel was already sliding away into a path of rejecting God. But, but Ahab doesn't even pretend to worship the true God anymore. He's making complete radical changes. He's the champion of Baal. He brings in Baal. As you could hear when I read it, it rings with the words Baal. And then he marries a, a, peasant, a, a pagan Jezebel who is a bloody evangelist for Baal. She is determined to stamp her country's religion on the, uh, Israel. And as it says in verse 33, he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the other kings. He has abandoned the God of Israel. And then you notice there's this little tag about Jericho on the bottom. What's that? Is that just a little throwaway line there? Well, you may remember that when Joshua conquered Jericho, Way back when God was defeating the land for Israel, Jericho was a strategic city. There's a reason it was a fort and built there. And God specifically said, do not build a fort there. If you do, you will lose your firstborn and your last son as a curse. And so this builder, Abiram, 
paid dearly, but it's clear that Ahab is the one that ordered it built because it was strategic. And so you just see here, Ahab just has no regard for God's word whatsoever, doesn't care. And that is why Elijah bursts onto the scene to confront this faithless king who is leading God's people away. And so Elijah begins this covenant confrontation with Ahab and really Baal. Now, for starters, do you know what Elijah's name means? El, God, E is a, is a suffix meaning my, my God, Eli, Yah. My God is Yahweh. Hmm. So my God is Yahweh comes and lays an ultimatum. As surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel, whom I serve, lives, there will be no rain except at my command. Now, there's two important ideas going on here. The idea of covenant and rain. Elijah begins with this pronouncement, as surely as Yahweh, by the way, the one who you have abandoned, lives. And when he says Yahweh, Elijah is taking Ahab back to the Exodus, where God, the true creator, reveals himself by that special name, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. And it's that special name that he gives himself, I am, to his people Israel. In the English Bible, when the Old Testament is talking about the name Yahweh, you'll see it as Lord in all caps. So L-O-R-D is slightly smaller, but you can see that in chapter 17, verse 1, as the Lord lives. And that's showing that it's talking about God's special name. So I am rescued his people, promised to be his people through a special covenant. This goes back to the roots of God's promises to Abraham. Right? Now, kids, what's a covenant? What's a covenant? A covenant, it's a special thing. It's a serious promise with blessings if you obey and curses, or we might say today consequences, if you disobey. But it's a very serious thing. Um, think about the marriage covenant. Right? When, when a, a man marries a woman, there is an, a promise to be with and love your spouse for the rest of your life. It's, it's exclusive. And uh, there's no backing out unless the other one is unfaithful. And that's what I am. The true God, how he promised to live and to love his people. Right, so this, this was completely exclusive. There, there was not just waiting for better options to move on. And that's, and that is why forsaking I am for Baal was so terrible. And so in this confrontation, Elijah reminds Ahab of the consequences of the covenant. And because they've rejected God, there will be consequences. There will be no rain. Now, why is is it just because God's a jilted lover and he doesn't know when to move on and he just get on with his life? Well, you need to know a little bit more about rain. Uh, rain is a big deal, especially for farmers. We know that, living in the country. Too much or too little is not a good thing. And this was especially the case for Israel. I want you to keep your finger in First Kings, but turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 11. That's page 155, if you're following along in the Pew Bibles. And this talks about Moses telling Israel in advance, when they're in the wilderness, what it will be like and how the land of Israel will be different from the land of Egypt. So we'll start at verse 10, chapter 11, Deuteronomy. Listen to how Moses will describe the land. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt. 
from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it, like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord, Yahweh, your God, cares for. The eyes of the Lord, your God, are always upon it, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord, your God, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its seasons, the early rain and the latter rain. And you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give you grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Now, you see, there's a difference here. Israel, where, where, or Egypt, where Israel were slaves, that was watered by the Nile. And that was a mixed blessing for, for Israel because it was good because you had a fairly constant water source for your crops and livestock. It was bad because you were slaves and you were the one that was hauling it up the banks and they would use a series of foot-powered irrigation buckets to take, bring the water up. Now, in the Promised Land... Instead, the ground received its vital water from two rainy seasons, and in between the dews, there were heavy dews. Again, this was a mixed blessing. It was good because you didn't have to do all the work, lugging up the water. God was going to do it. It was bad because you had no control over the rain. And you have to realize these rains were literally life and death matters back then. In a time when food was so scarce... You were only a locust swarm or a drought away from real hunger and possible starvation. So when Elijah threatens King Ahab with a drought, he's got his attention. But it goes a lot deeper than that. Rain and covenant, God's promises are connected. We're just going to read two more verses in Deuteronomy before we go back to Kings. Look at chapter 11, starting in verse 16. Moses says, take care lest your hearts be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off of the good land that the Lord is giving you. Okay, we can go back to first Kings now. The real question here is who brings the rain? Who provides life? Now, most ancients believed that there were gods and the gods had individual control over various parts of life. So there would have been the god of the sun, god of the moon, god of war, god of the sea. Who was Baal supposed to be? Baal was the god of the storm clouds. Baal was the god that brought the rain and therefore harvest and fertility. You see why it would have been so attractive to worship Baal. He's the one that everyone else says is going to bring the rain, that's going to bring you life and success. If he's the God of the rain, the God that brings food and life, well then maybe Yahweh, maybe we're worshiping the wrong God. Maybe we should follow someone else. And so Elijah lays down this challenge. There will be no rain. Okay, you want to follow Baal and and, and him to water your crops? He can't do a thing. I'm calling it now. No rain. Once the rainy season started, every day that went by without rain would be a slap in the face to everyone who trusted in Baal. The great tragedy here is that Ahab chose a false god to give life to the land and his people. But instead of getting what he thought he would, getting ahead in life, he brought drought and death. That's the destructive power of idolatry. 
That's what happens when you trust something else for your life and for your happiness. Now, of course, we could all say that's, you know, that's well and good, but we don't worship Baal today, right? No problems with idolatry. It's not just an ancient problem. It's a human problem. It's, it's without God, we are all searching for meaning and significance and satisfaction. In fact, that's one of the things that defines us as human beings. We are not just content with just our basic essentials. We need some type of significance. And without God, we will search other places to our own destruction. I just want to, I want to look at two ways that we do that today. Um, the first would be addiction, where we crave something to make our lives better. Something that promises to give us meaning, but in the end controls us. It's usually a cycle that leads to destruction. So it could be substances. It could be gambling. It could be entertainment, binging. It could be pornography. It could be food. By the way, if you think your pastors are perfect, I invite you to close your ears. Because I'd like to talk just a little bit about one area in my life. That would be food. That the Lord in the past has shown me was obvious. There's times I've been addicted to it. One time that was very clear, even the moment when, when I was my first deployment, I was a, a young soldier, I was, uh, I was lonely, I was bored, I was fit, I was working out, I was eating a lot, often I ate well, but there were times when I was hurting that I would, I would binge on food, and the army provides a lot of high sugar, high carb foods because that's what you eat when you're burning four or 5,000 calories a day in the heat out in the field, which I was not doing, but it's just there and you can take them. There's no questions asked. So I remember times just feasting, gorging on these empty snacks. What's the fallout? What did I feel like? I'll tell you. I felt sick to my stomach. First it felt good, but then... Reaching after snack after snack, you can't stop. And you're no longer feeling good anymore. And eventually you you feel like you kind of want to just roll over and die. You're in bondage. Felt my heart dry up and far away from God. I felt that sin open doors to other temptations. They made them stronger. Physically speaking, I got a lot of cavities. I want you to see how idols work, this idol of addiction. My, my idol of food said, you're away from your family, you're, you're bored, you're, you're lonely, come to me and I will make your life better. It feels like that for about five minutes. But it's short-lived. And each time it gets worse and, and you become more and more trapped and driven away from God. And in my case, it literally brought decay. Addiction is an obvious sort of idolatry. It offers you significance, but it's short-lived and, and the end is serious. But you know, there's, there's other ways that are they're more tr- subtle that we can all at least fall into or be drawn into. And that's not so much an addiction right away, but an allegiance where our hearts are drawn to something else. Jesus is no longer your Lord. And, and this might sustain you and maybe even make you prosperous and successful. People would look at you and say, yes, you are the person I want to become. It's what makes it tricky. And yet Jesus is no longer your Lord. You can think of obvious examples of of your family or your career or, or a relationship or even things like wealth and comfort and fame, which in themselves may not be bad. But the bottom line is that your allegiance is more important to you than Jesus. 
You think of, you know, sometimes you have a hobby that you love and it starts out wonderful and then, you know, it becomes an escape when life is hard. And really, you become all about that hobby. And, and your life is not expanded, but you become constrained. So you're all about this one little facet of life. You become small. It consumes you. Or it could be uh, uh, something that's good, but it's a self-righteous idol. Something that if, if God has given you a family with children, we love our children. They're a gift from God, but your family can become your image. And you put your stock in how your kids behave in public. And you, you give them that message, we are good Christians in public. And it might drive them away from you in the church. Right? In, in either of these cases or anything where it's good, you're looking for your fulfillment and things... That are not Jesus. He's no longer the Lord. Well, how can you detect when your allegiance has gone somewhere else? Well, here's just a couple of diagnostic keys. The first is that your passion kills your love for God. Do I love God more because of this passion? That's a question you could ask yourself. You know, it's a good thing to care about God's world. He made it. It's good. We should be enjoying it. We should be excited about it. Enjoy it to his glory. And yet, it can become so big that it casts a shadow over God. Kids, let's just take an example of, oh, I don't know, something that you love in school. Maybe some of you love to study science. Right? You can study science in a way that just enjoys what God is doing, marvels at how neat all those underwater sea creatures are, or molecular biology, or astronomy, and just be marveled about how, God, how wonderful God is, and, and get into all the details and learning about how things work. That's to the glory of God. Or as you get older, you could find that science becomes a way to make a comfortable living for yourself, to get a reputation for yourself to get fame, and to walk away from the Lord. You can do it either way. And so you have to ask, do I love God more because of my passion? Another one that you should think about today, especially today, is that you start to question God's laws because of this allegiance. Today it's all about being self-fulfilled, right? Being truly yourself is being happy in the moment. And so God's a good God and he'd want me to be happy, so fill in the blank. You know, parents, I, I've got to give my kid this, this perfect recipe. So it's negotiable for us to make Sunday morning worship or, or to disciple our children. Um, relationships is a big one today. We have this feeling that, this developed this idea that love is a feeling first and not a commitment. So... Marriage is, is negotiable. You know, the, 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 the sexual confusion that we have today really started when we allowed no-fault divorce. You know, so young people, you can say, God wants me to be happy so I can, I can just live with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Or on the other one hand, God wants me to be happy so if my marriage isn't fulfilling me, I, I, I can move on. The list goes on and on, but if you catch yourself saying, I know God says this, but he wants me to be happy, so this, your first love is an idol and not God. Where's your allegiance? Now, the objection today is this isn't really a big deal. After all, does it really matter whether I worship Yahweh or Baal? Does it really matter if I serve my career or Jesus um, I don't know if you've heard of a guy named David Rubin. He has a, a YouTube uh, 
interview uh, called the Rubin Report. He's a uh, grew up Jewish conservative, was kind of leaning atheistic, and now is kind of maybe saying, well, there must be something in life, but uh, I don't know really what it is. He's worth looking up because he, he invites people onto his show and just more or less listens to them. He's a model of good conversation. So for that reason alone, he's worth listening, up, listening to. But um, time to time, I've, I've seen him, when I see him interview someone that's interesting to me, I will, I will look him up. And so he recently uh, interviewed Ravi Zacharias, well-known Christian apologist. And Ravi has this beautiful story about how he was literally on his deathbed. He had tried to commit suicide. He grew up in a life of privilege in the highest caste in India. He wasn't making it in school. He tried to take his life. He was despairing. And as he was not successful in his suicide attempt, someone placed a New Testament in his hand. And he heard about the transforming life that Jesus promised. And he reached out in faith and God made him a new man. And so David is listening to this, he's respectful, he's interested, and he says, okay, that's, that's, that's really neat. He says, but you know, you know, what if you just don't need Jesus to live a successful life? I mean, I, he says, I, you know, I, I know a lot of people who are good and productive and do a lot of morally upright and laudable things without Jesus. You know, they, they, you know, they live for something else and they're happy and healthy. Do, they, do we really need Jesus? In other words, some people need religion to help them structure their life and help them stay on the straight and narrow. But what if other people are able to do it by themselves? Does it really matter? You know, if they need help, good. Be it Muhammad, Buddha, Jesus, Baal. But what if I don't need that framework to live a meaningful life? What if I don't need God to send the rain? We are in the 21st century after all. And I don't know about you, but as you know, we're globalizing and you get to see people and hear people who are not in your own circle who are not Christians, you realize that there are many non-Christians out there who do many admirable things, who from a civic point of view uh, live a very morally upright lives. people that you probably wouldn't mind being neighbors with and getting to know, right? So, so what do you do about that? Well, there's, there's many ways to answer that question. There's lots of conversations. And if you're, that, that question's rattling around in your head, love to have dinner with you or talk with you sometime about that. There's a bottom line in Scripture. There's much more you can say. But the bottom line is that God created you. And you owe him worship. And what you see here in this Elijah, Elisha story is that, that God is not content to let you sit by and live as if you were God and he is not. And ultimately, if you live as you, as you were God, you will stand before him and be judged. And your life will be extremely dry and dead spiritually. You will face eternal judgment. If you haven't confessed Jesus as Lord, you will be eternally judged. And we can talk about how it means, what it means in the present life, but, but listen to this. From the Bible's point of view, from what God has revealed to us, this question of idolatry isn't a fascinating discussion about how to live a little better today. Like, you know, which, which food choice or dieting plan is better? Is it South Beach? Is it vegan? Is it paleo? You know, hey, whichever one helps, that's great. This view of life and death questions that Jesus is truly Lord. And the Bible says it's, it's not just an academic discussion. This idea of idolatry is insanity. It brings shock. Do, do you remember the, the scripture reading that we read from Jeremiah 2? God said, I led you out into the wilderness. You were my beloved bride. We loved each other. How, how is this possible? You have forsaken me, the only one who could hold true water. 
You've gone and chased things that are cracked and you put the water in it. It just drains out and leaves you dry. You're asking for ultimate life from dead and dying things. And I will tell you what, when God allows you to see and feel the consequences of you leaving him, that's not him being jealous or petty. That's his mercy to you. He's allowing you to see that where I'm going leads to nowhere good. In fact, it leads to eternal judgments. God says, don't you see, I bring the rain, and not just physical rain, but true life, spiritual rain. So what do we do with this? Here's what I ask you today. First of all, ask God, show me my idols. Show me where I am looking and tempted to find life somewhere else. Now, some of you know today, some of you, maybe you are trapped in an addiction or idolatry that's grabbed your heart. Maybe it's maybe it has serious consequences in your life and perhaps no one else or very few people know about it. Well, then you don't need to pray this. You need to go to the next step and ask God to help you deal with that. But others, you you may not know. You say, well, there's nothing major. And so you might be blind to the temptations in your life. I do find it difficult to, t- to talk about idols because either you have this, this large consuming thing or maybe subtle, respectable ones that you might not even realize. So what if I'm not addicted? Well, you're still vulnerable. In fact, if, if you asked me and we were very close friends, I could tell you five to ten areas in my life right away. These are, these are areas, most of them good, that I find myself susceptible to be drawn away to because of who I am. You know, idolatry is a spectrum. Yeah, it, it could be utterly consuming, but it could also be just a little tempting song, a little nugget. Just, just come here, taste a little bit. Be aware and ask the Lord, where, where am I tempted that I need to fight and be aware of? What particular temptations are attracted to me? Lord, show me my idols so that I can do battle against them. And then ask God to help you see the insanity of your idols. Unless you have hit rock bottom, they may seem so cute and so cuddly. Right? Just, just one little cookie when you're lonely. Just, just one little snack. But they deal in death. They lead to empty, broken cisterns that can't fulfill you. And so pray, Lord, help me to see the insanity of looking for life outside of you. Right? You know, if you have a pet idol, a little fantasy a little indulgence. You know it's wrong. You know it's giving you spiritual paper cuts. You know it's, it's a little low-grade fever that's getting in your relation, way, the relationship with God. But yet, it's, it's just so small. I like it. I know it's wrong, but I don't want to get rid of it. So what, what do you do? Ask God, Father, help me to see the insanity of what I'm doing. Give me a picture of what I could become. If I follow down this path, sometimes you have to learn the hard way. Something takes control of you and you hit rock bottom and you are close to a near-death experience. You lose your job or your families. But do we have to go there? Lord, help me see in these little temptations what they could become. Would you give me the mercy of showing me my idols without experiencing those consequences? Father, help me to see the insanity of going somewhere else. Now, I will say that this sermon is just the beginning of the Christian battle against idolatries. 
You know, what do I do if I'm addicted to something that's wrong and destructive? If I realize that I, I love something too much, it's not just something, oh, okay, I, I realize this and now the battle's done, right? No, there's, there's a life of discipleship, of, of living together, of fighting together, a life of accountability. Sometimes if it's physical substance, medical intervention as well, of, of learning to put off and put on new life in Christ and practicing repentance. That's, that's not what we're looking at today. Just basking in the truth that the gospel is greater than what we're tempted to follow. And the grace of God can break the power of our addictions and idolatry. We learn from Elijah that Yahweh, the I Am, He provides the rain. He's the one that brings fulfillment. But as you complete the story of the Old Testament, you find even greater clarity that Jesus provides the rain. That Jesus provides true life. Turn with me to John chapter 8, page 895 in your pew Bibles. And in this passage, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. He's talking about who their father is, and they're, they're firing back at who his father is. You don't even have a human father, Jesus. And as he's talking with them, he makes an astounding claim. Chapter 8, at the very end of this argument, uh, verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's not just saying, you know, I'm a guy, I'm around. Sometimes the Greek word means that. Here he's clearly saying, I am Yahweh. I am the I am of the Old Testament. And how do you know that? Because of the next verse. So they picked up stones to throw at him. The Jewish leaders knew their Bible well. And Jesus here is saying to him, them, I am the Old Testament God that you claim to worship in the flesh. And that is why when Jesus, the great I am, stands up in the passage that we read in John chapter 7 and claims that if you are thirsty and if your life is a wreck or if you realize you are chasing worthless things, if you will come and believe and trust in Him, then He will give you true meaning and purpose in water of life that will flow out and spill to others too. This and Jesus backs up this bold claim by rising from the dead. Who can, he controls life. He is someone who has experienced true life and can give it to us. Not just in the future when we die, but right now. I want you to think about this, about the incredible good news of the gospel. This is what we say we're excited about, and yet it can go underground. We can, we can lose its brilliance. We can lose its wonder. Idolatry causes that spiritual dryness and death like the scorched earth and plants in a dry Iraqi summer. There's no life. It's all gone. The gospel is that Jesus died for our idolatry, to take our death, to give us that new water that would give us living and vibrant life. And the water springs up and we grow green and vibrant and beautiful to his glory. He is your life. Jesus says, you will find meaning by loving and obeying and serving me. The laws that I give you are not about killing your fun or limiting your option, but guiding you to know the Creator and now your Redeemer who's given Himself for you. Jesus makes these claims. Test Him in this. Is He really, as Paul says, Christ who is your life? 
When you have to give up something that hurts, and I know I am a compulsive personality, I know for my body to scream, I want this. This will make me better and say, no, Jesus is my life. Lord, I am yours. Take my desires and change them. Test him that you will not be better off. You will be fulfilled. Ask him today, whether it's your first time or thousands, Lord, give me this water. Put your faith in the I am who lived and dwelled on this world who brings the rain. Pray with me.